Father, we come here on Good Friday to give thanks to you because you gave us your son, Jesus. If you hadn't given him to us, we'd be lost. If you hadn't taken the initiative, we would never have been found. And Lord, on this day, we thank you for loving us so much that you didn't leave us, but you gave us the most precious thing that you had, your only begotten son. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you because you gave us everything. Everything you did, you did for us. You came to this world for us. You were born of a virgin for us. You lived under the law for us. You died on the cross and shed your blood for us. You went to the grave for us. And three days later, you came out of the grave for us. And then you ascended into heaven for us. And now, this very moment as I speak, you're praying for us by name. You live evermore to intercede for us. And we just want to say that we're grateful. We're grateful today. We're grateful for what you've done. In Jesus' name, Father, receive our prayers and our prayers and touch us by the Holy Spirit for the sake of your Son and the Gospel. Amen. Amen. Well, today we are celebrating the death of Christ. And that 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross so that we could have access to the Holy of Holies. And the thing is that when we speak about Jesus dying on the cross, 2,000 years has, uh, has made us get used to the image of the cross. It's made us get used to the idea of Jesus dying on a cross. Often we wear crosses on chains or we're used to great and wonderful pictures that have been done throughout the Renaissance and onwards of Jesus dying almost delicately on a cross. And we forgot what actually happened on the cross. We've forgotten sometimes the offense of the cross and therefore the power of the cross. And often in modern times, we find that theologians and modern-day preachers are ashamed about the blood aspect of what happened on the cross. And they've sought to preach a bloodless gospel, a gospel that speaks about Jesus, who was a model for us, who came with a Sermon on the Mount to give us some good ideas about to how we should live our lives, uh, and that he gave his life for us, but the emphasis on his life and not on his death on his, or his blood. But today I want to speak to you about the blood of Christ, because if the gospel is anything, then the gospel is a gospel of blood. And if the good news is anything... It's the good news that Jesus shed his blood for our sins. You know, it's interesting we don't hear much about the blood of Christ, or not as much as we used to in the church. But references to the blood of Christ in the New Testament, there are five times more references to the blood of Christ in the New Testament than even to the death of Christ. Five times more, the blood of Christ. And there are three times more references in the New Testament to the blood of Christ than even the cross of Christ. 
I think there's something about the blood of Jesus that needs to be rediscovered. You know, in the early days of Pentecost, the Pentecostals were known for their preaching on the blood of Jesus. I remember a good friend of mine, he's a canon in the Church of England, and we went to university together. In fact, he brought me to the Lord and and discipled me. And when he heard that I was going into the Pentecostal ministry, he said to me, ah, you'll be preaching on the blood then. Because he knew that the Pentecostals would plead the blood, they'd pray the blood, they'd sing the blood, they'd preach the blood. Almost so much that perhaps they didn't understand either exactly what they were saying. But I want to tell you today that we are literally saved by the actual blood of Christ shed 2,000 years ago. I've got a few scriptures uh, to introduce some of you to this concept and to remind others of you. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of, of our trespasses. Ephesians 2.13, having had no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Romans 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Romans 5 and verse 8. But God has shown his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him From the wrath of God. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God who he purchased with his own blood. Can you see in just those few short passages that the blood is purchasing, that the blood is redeeming? Or buying us back from sin from God. That it was the blood in Ephesians that actually has brought us that were without hope in the world near to God. It was the very blood that did that. It was the blood of Christ that justified us before God. In other words, it was the blood and faith in his blood that made us that were not acceptable to God, now acceptable to him by faith in the blood shed of Jesus. It's the blood that forgives us. It was the blood that came and propitiated God's righteous anger against our sin. It was when God saw the blood that is righteous and appropriate, fury, wrath and anger over our sin was appeased by faith. This blood is so important in the New Testament. It's so important for us to understand because our gospel is a gospel of blood. And these references in the New Testament hark back to the Old Testament. 
You can't fully understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. They're not two separate books. The New Covenant is based on the Old Covenant and is indeed a fulfillment of everything the Old Testament hoped for, longed for, prophesied and desired was to come in the blood of the New Testament. No, John the Baptist, that great prophet that bridged the Old Testament to the New Testament, what was his message? He came out like a whirlwind into the wilderness and began preaching, flee from the wrath to come. That was his message. There was a real wrath, a real judgment. And John the Baptist said, flee from the wrath to come. What was his answer? Where were we to flee from the wrath to come? Well, one day he saw the Son of God, Jesus, coming to be baptized. And what did the prophet proclaim? He said, behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Flee from the wrath to come. Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God. What was he doing? He was bridging the Old Testament to the New This lamb, as we will see, takes us back to the Old Testament. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, spoke of Christ and said, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He's speaking back into the Old Testament to understand the present. Jesus himself, we have already taken communion together. And as we took wine, uh, we heard those words, This is my blood. Of the new covenant which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. This isn't just a new covenant or a new contract or a new way of dealing with people from God. It actually came into being, was ratified and put into effect by not just Jesus' death. But Jesus himself said his very blood that was poured out on Calvary. Well, we see that there's an importance here of the blood in the New Testament and that Jesus, Paul, and John the Baptist and those few illustrations I've given are saying, look back to understand the importance of Good Friday. So let's look back. Let's go into the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 4. Let's see when the Bible records the first blood that was ever shed. We're talking about the blood of Abel here. Genesis 4 verse 8, and as you may know, Cain murdered his brother Abel. But when Abel died, that wasn't the end of it. That wasn't the end of it. In fact, it was when his blood was shed that something happened that got God's attention. Genesis 4 verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, And when they were in the field, Cain rose up up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, "I, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. This is a fascinating insight The first blood that was uh, slain, shed in the Old Testament. And we see that this blood 
was speaking. This blood had a voice. This blood was making appeal to God. Abel couldn't make an appeal to God. Abel couldn't cry out to God. Why? Abel had died. But Abel's blood that was shed, the physical blood that was lying there on the ground, that blood was speaking to God. It was appealing to God. It was, as God says, your, blood, your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Crying for God to respond. Crying for God to act. Crying for God to do something. And he did respond to this blood. Now this is important because in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 24, the author speaks about this moment and compares it with the blood that was shed from Christ on the cross that also hit the ground. Because the moment the first drop of Christ's blood on Good Friday hit the ground, it began to speak. Hebrews 12 verse 24 tells us to come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see there in Hebrews 12, 24, when Jesus' blood hit the ground as he was dying on the cross, it spoke, but it spoke a better word to God. The blood appealed to God. The, God, the blood spoke to God. The, God asked, the blood asked God to respond, just like the blood of Abel. But the blood of Abel cried out for revenge. How many of you know the blood of Jesus cries out for mercy? And that blood cried out. And that blood that was spilt cried out and shook the universe. And the blood cried out your name, and the blood cried out my name, and the blood cried out, have mercy. God heard the blood of his son responded to it and brought us forgiveness of sins. You know, we said that uh, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sins of the world. We saw that Paul said, Behold, our Passover Lamb. And this Easter is our Christian Passover. So what was it about Passover that tells us about the blood of Jesus? Well, Let's go to Exodus in chapter 24. God was going to deliver his people. He was going to deliver them from slavery. He was going to deliver them from bondage. He was going to deliver them from sickness. He was going to deliver them from poverty. He was going to deliver them from that old devil Pharaoh. He was going to deliver his people. And he'd sent mighty signs and wonders in order to deliver his people. He'd sent all of those plagues. And every time Moses said, let my, God says, let my people go, Pharaoh said, I will. And then he changed his mind and he said, I won't. In the end, the only thing that would be able to deliver God's people from Pharaoh, bondage and slavery in Egypt, the only thing that was going to be able to deliver them was blood. Blood shed from lambs. Here we are in Exodus chapter 24. Oops, sorry. Uh, sorry, Exodus 12. That's my next one. Sorry about that. 
Exodus 12, 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months, the start of a new life. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregations of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb. Every man shall take a lamb. According to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of the persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep, from the goats, and you shall keep it to the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregations of Israel shall together kill their lambs at twilight. But that wasn't the end of it. Listen to me, it wasn't enough just to kill a lamb. You had to do something with its blood. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. And they shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. And then if we move a little bit further down, verse 12, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague shall befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You see, not enough just to kill a lamb, not enough just for a death of a lamb. Oh, we sacrificed our lamb, yes. But if you didn't put the blood on the door, then the Lord would not have passed over you, but he would have visited you with the judgment that was coming to Egypt. That blood, and you know the most important thing about this blood is what it did to God. Yes, it was a sign for the people of Israel, but more importantly, it was a sign for God. He said, when I see the blood, not some symbolic blood, you couldn't kill the lamb and then not put blood on the door or, or, or put a piece of paper and put a little bit of red ink and say, this is symbolic. This symbolized, this red ink on this white paper. I'll put it on the door and this will symbolize the blood of the lamb that we've slain. God, God would not recognize that symbolism. He only recognized houses and passed over them that had real, genuine blood of sacrificed lambs on them. It was visible to God. And when God saw the blood, judgment passed over that house. But where there was no blood presented on the doorposts, then God's judgment fell. The blood protected them. The blood took place. It was the lamb that died instead of the firstborn in that house that died. But it was the lamb's blood that prevented God visiting that judgment, not just the death alone. I like what Dr. R.T. Kendall says about this particular passage. He says, the blood set God free from doing what otherwise he would have done. The blood set God free from doing what he otherwise would have done. He was coming and he was bringing judgment. But the blood, 
that was on the doorpost set God free from doing that judgment and instead he had mercy. You see how important this is when Paul says Christ is our Passover lamb. In Exodus 24, which we turned to earlier by mistake, we see how blood was so important to the sacrificial uh, aspect of the law. You know, the law of God, very important, but sometimes people forget. They tend to think, well, the law, you know, the law requires 100% obedience for you to be justified. Well, that's true. But at the heart of law was also blood. Blood and sacrifice. And in Exodus chapter 23, 24, sorry, we see pictures of this. I don't don't need to go into detail here. But offerings were taken. And uh, we see verse 5. He sent young men, this is Moses of the people of Israel, who burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood. See, wasn't just enough for the oxen to die. The blood had to be presented and the blood had to be applied. It wasn't just the death. It was the blood that had power. The blood that would make a change. So he took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And say, they all said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. I love that. Not just sprinkle. He threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. The blood was put on the people. The blood was put on the priests. The blood was taken once a year on the day of atonement for the atoning of national sin. The high priest once a year in Israel, only once, would enter the Holy of Holies. But if he went into that Holy of Holies without blood, let me tell you something, he wouldn't come out again. The priests had bells on their skirts and they had bells on their skirts so that when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year with blood, they could hear the bells ringing because they couldn't go in. And as long as they heard the bells ringing, they knew the priest was was still alive and perhaps God was accepting the blood. But if those bells stopped ringing, the other priests started panicking. And they even had a big stick with a hook on the end just in case God didn't accept the priest's blood that he brought in so that they could draw him out. This is, this is real blood. If the priest had gone in and said, we've killed the animal and not brought the blood, what do you think God would have done? The blood had to be presented. The blood had to be applied. God was looking for the evidence of sacrificial death. Well, When we come back now to the New Testament, some people, especially in this modern world, often say, well, blood, a gospel of blood. Why why should literal, literal blood have played such an important part in the Old Testament? How could the literal blood of Abel have had such power? How could the literal blood of animals literally had an effect on God and his relationship with the people? How could the literal 
physical blood of Jesus shed have an effect on God? How can this deal with the relationship between God and man? How can blood restore a broken relationship? Well, you have to understand that Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says this, categorically, 9.22, that without blood there is no remission of sins. In other words, without death, sin can't be dealt with. You say, why is it so? Couldn't God just have overlooked our sin and our rebellion and our wickedness? No, he already said in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin is... When he said to Adam and Eve, he said, you touch or taste that fruit and the day you eat of that fruit, you will die. Well, the day they ate of that fruit, they didn't physically die. But the day they ate of that fruit, something died in their relationship with God and they hid from God because they were guilty and they knew that they had come into judgment through disobedience and when Adam and Eve tasted that apple. You know, when Adam tasted that apple, well, you can still taste it in your mouth today. Because when he tasted that fruit, he tasted that fruit for all of us. He was our representative, our ancestor. And when he went down, he took the whole human race with him. And that's why we all die. Do you know, death is the most unnatural event on the face of the earth today. Death is the greatest enemy of mankind, creation, and death is the greatest enemy of God. Aren't you glad that Jesus died in order to bring judgment to death? And on the third day, on Sunday, we're going to be celebrating that death has been conquered. Christ has gone before us. We may die, but we know that death is just separation from the body to be near Christ for those that believe. The death he died, he died for all. When Adam died, he took us into death. But when Jesus died, everything he did, he did for us. When he died, he died for us. When he died, we died. When he died, he died to sin. And we who are in Christ, when he died to this sinful world, we died to this sinful world. When he rose again, we rose again. We have a sure and certain hope because of the blood of Jesus that spoke to God, that God brought Jesus on the third day back, that we are saved by the blood. 1 John chapter 4 verse 9. You see... Sin can never be dealt with apart from the shedding of blood. That's why the sacrifice of Calvary is so important. You can't get to heaven or to God by good works or charitable deeds. You can't get to God with symbolism and ritualism. No, God has said, someone's got to die. The wages of sin is death. Someone's got to die. Someone's got to pay the price. And you have a choice today. You can pay the price yourself and stand in your own righteousness. Or you can stand in Christ's righteousness and let Christ's blood pay the price for your salvation. Look at 1 John chapter 4 verse 9. One of the most incredible passages in the New Testament. And at the heart of it is blood. Blood and propitiation. 1 John 4 verse 9. 
In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Let's just stop there. There's a lot of talk about what love is and what love isn't. Like that little cartoon, love is a warm puppy. Well, it's a near thing, but it's not true. People talk about love and people talk about emotions. And some people talk about a God who loves so much that nobody would ever go to hell because God is love. So how could a God of love ever as well be a God of judgment? Well, what is love? Here is your definition of love. This, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. How? What does love look like? It looks like this, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. There we go. What is love? Love is the fact that God the Father sent the initiative. He knew that we were under judgment. The wages of sin is death. God is holy and can't ignore that which is unholy. It has to be dealt with. Can, can you imagine if the judges in Britain today, even though the evidence pointed or the jury convicted criminals of heinous crimes, can you imagine if the judge says, do you know, today I'm feeling a bit of love for the murderer. Today I'm feeling a bit of love for the rapist. You know what? I know they've been convicted of crimes, but I'm in a good mood, so I'm going to let them go. How would you feel? Would you feel angry about that? Would you feel angry if someone close to you was murdered, or someone close to you was violated, or someone's house close to you, someone very close to you, someone committed a crime, they went into court, and the evidence was there, and the jury found them guilty, but the judge was, was in a good mood and feeling quite love, loving. And let the, Would you feel angry about that? Well, that's right that you would feel angry. How do you think God feels about our sin? How do you think he feels? And we see in this verse explaining what love was, that at the heart of love is a word that we call propitiation. At the heart of love was propitiation. This is love, that God loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation. It's one of the most amazing words in the Bible, but it's one of the most hated words by modern theologians, some modern theologians today. What is propitiation? Well, this is what propitiation is. It is the turning away of the wrath or anger of God by an offering. Propitiation is applicating or a satisfying of the anger and wrath of God by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Propitiation involves in appeasing, satisfying, turning the away the wrath of an offended person and being reconciled to them. Now, this assumes when we talk about the propitiation that Christ was a propitiation. This assumes that there has an that an offence has been taken, an offence has been done and needs to be dealt with. It assumes it. That someone's been offended and an act has been done. It assumes that there is a person that has been rightfully offended and who needs to be pacified. An offence has taken place. A person has been offended. 
and it assumes that there is a person that is guilty of the offence. Offence has taken place, somebody has rightfully been offended, and somebody has given offence. This is what propitiation is all about, dealing with those issues of offence. You know, sin is not just an action, not just a crime. Sin is, above all things, sin is personal. And God takes sin very personally indeed. The wrath of God has been revealed, Romans says. It's incredible. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. What gospel? The gospel of blood. The good news that Christ died. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is power. Everybody say power. Power Power to save. The gospel, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why did Paul say that? Because some people were ashamed of the gospel. He could have said, I am proud of the gospel. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because so many people were ashamed. And they were ashamed by the stumbling block of shed blood. They were offended by it. The Greeks wanted wisdom, cleverness, philosophy. That's what they wanted. And the Jews wanted yet another sign. But all we have to offer you as preachers of the gospel is a bloody cross and an empty tomb. That's all we have to offer. But within that message is the very power of God that can save the Jew first and the Gentile. It's open to all. The wrath of God. Some people say, well, God's angry today, is he? Like the wrath of God is some sort of emotional outburst of anger that God somehow can't control and we have to tiptoe around him in case he's suddenly going to go off on another one. God's wrath and anger is not like human wrath and anger. It is measured. It is appropriate. It is his right and proper opposition to all that is evil and it arises out of his very nature and his very character and his wrath burns. But when he sees the blood. Finally, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11. Hebrews is a wonderful epistle. Very very few Christians are familiar with the book of Hebrews. But it's essential. If our gospel is a gospel of blood, it's essential to understand Hebrews because it looks back to the Old Testament to explain the new. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, that, made, that not made with hands, that is, of his creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but that by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls And the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, 
offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant. We're speaking about Good Friday. We're speaking about the sacrifice. And that when Jesus shed his blood, we find that he presented that blood. It wasn't just that he died. Of course he had to die to shed his blood. And I understand that sometimes when we speak, especially the New Testament authors, when they speak about the death of Christ, they're thinking about the blood of Christ. They're thinking about the shed blood. I understand that. But today, not, not, not everybody when they talk about the death of Christ are thinking about the shed blood. They're thinking about Christ's great example or Christ's great obedience or Christ's great love on the cross. All that is fine. But we've already seen that it was by his blood that he propitiated. In other words, when Jesus entered into the Holy of Holies, we're not talking about some temple in Jerusalem. We're talking about the Holy of Holies where God is. Not a, a tent made with hands, but, but, but an eternal. And when he came with that sacrifice, Christ, the blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself. When he brought that blood to his father, and that blood that was the sum total of everything that he'd done and everything that he'd suffered, and that sacrifice... That blood, when God saw that blood, and for all that believe in that blood, that it was your, it was a sacrifice that took your place. It's a blood that speaks on your behalf. It's a sign to you. Christ crucified, preached is a sign to you. But also the blood of Jesus is an eternal sign to God. The blood of Jesus never loses its power. The blood of Jesus is as powerful to save and to heal today as it was that when the first drop of his blood hit that ground on Calvary. It's got saving power. It's got healing power. It's got sanctifying power. And when the Holy Ghost sees the blood, that's where he comes. Blood and fire, the Salvation Army motto. Blood and fire. And that's what we need today. We need a restoration and a fresh contact with the blood of Jesus. And when the Holy Spirit sees the blood, he sends the fire. The Holy Spirit answers to the blood. When he sees the blood, he brings the kingdom. When he sees the blood, he brings regeneration. When he sees the blood, he brings manifestation, deliverance from the demonic. The blood of Jesus delivers. The blood of Jesus saves. The blood of Jesus cleanses. The blood of Jesus is your hope. It's the only thing you can plead before God. And the blood of Jesus speaks. It's eternal sacrifice. We need no more sacrifices. We don't need another temple in Jerusalem. What are you going to do? You're going to build another temple in Jerusalem? You're going to bring goats? You're going to bring ox? You're going to bring lambs? Slap in the face of Christ. That blood sacrifice has once and for all been done. And that blood is eternally shed. It lasts forever. And it's powerful enough to save to the uttermost every human being. Oh, my friend, get back to the gospel of blood sacrifice. God's wrath has been turned by the blood. Jesus paid the price. 
God the Father can't resist the blood of his Son. And don't think that God the Son is a loving, loving God and God the Father is somehow an angry God, like some say, that God the Father needs to be propitiated, that God the Father needs to be calmed. What sort of monster is this God? It was God the Father that sent his Son. It was God the Father, Ephesians tells us, that put forward his son as a propitiation. He says, son, I'm sending you down there. You don't have to go, but I'd like you to go. Because there's a people, and what they deserve is judgment, wrath, and anger. And my anger burns against their sin. I'm taking it personally. But I've also found there's a way. There is blood. If you come and be born as a man, fully God, fully man, Live as a man, breathe as a man, live under the law, a perfect life. If you were to voluntarily offer yourself on the cross and shed your blood, then I would look at your blood and I would have mercy. It's the only way, son. And Jesus said, are you sure? And Gethsemane, he said, are you sure this is the only way? And he he was so struggling What was he struggling with? Dying? Many people die. Many people die. People die for one another. People die in wars. People die in accidents. We've all got to die sometime. Was it fear of death? No. It was that Christ knew there was a cup that he was going to have to taste. And that cup was the cup of God's wrath. And he would have to drink down every dreg. Every the wrath of God, and that in that cup on the cross, the full force of God's righteous anger against sin would be placed in that cup, and on that cross, Christ the Son of God would taste every drop for you and for me. This isn't just some meek and mild Jesus walking around doing good with a nice message. I tell you what, the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest spirit-filled sermon ever preached, but without the blood of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount cannot help you. In fact, it condemns you. A friend of mine's not a Christian. He says, I am a Christian. I said, you're not a Christian. He says, I am. I'm a Christian with a small c. What does that mean? It means that Jesus was a model. I think he said some good things. He was a great teacher. Christ condemns you. It's only the blood that saves. It's only the blood that saves. Let's bow our heads. If Jonathan could come up. When we sing about the blood, we are not singing about something symbolic. We're not singing about something that's shorthand. We're singing about something that is real. It was a real body on a cross. It was real blood that it was shed. And that blood avails. And you say to yourself, I want that blood to be my sacrifice. I want what God has put on the earth to redeem me. I want to be redeemed. I don't want to be condemned, especially if God doesn't want to condemn me. Well, he has given you the path. You say, what must I do to be saved? Believe that Jesus' blood shed for you and speaks of better things and speaks of mercy. Because if you believe in your heart 
Just believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus died for you. His blood was shed for you. And he rose again on the third day. If you truly want, believe that in your heart. I tell you by the authority Christ's New Testament that your, your sins, though they be many, are forgiven you. Not just today, but forever. With every head bowed, if you say, do you know, I've never quite seen it like that. Justice and mercy coming together in the blood of Jesus. Speaks of God's justice, speaks of God's mercy, and is calling my name to the Father. And all you have to say is, I believe.